Well, welcome to another episode of On The Couch with myself, Henry Jennings from Marcus Today. And this week, I've actually turned the tables on Gemma Dale from Trade. I did a podcast with Gemma a couple of weeks ago and it uh, got me thinking that maybe it was time that I actually turned the tables on her and got her on the show. And many of you will be familiar with Gemma from her work on Ausbiz for Trade, and she's fantastic on telly and uh, fantastic in real life as well. And she has uh, she's the director of SMSF and investor behavior at Trade. So she offers some really fantastic insights, I guess, into what's happening in the market, what people are doing, because Trade is, of course, one of the biggest platforms in Australia for uh, stockbrokers uh, or stockbroking, buying and selling shares. So it's really great to have Gemma on the show. And I'm really looking forward to chatting to her and uh, gaining as much as I can in terms of insights of what's going on with the retail market at the moment. So Gemma, welcome. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. It was lovely to chat. It's uh, it's great to chat to you. Now, just before we kick off, though, I must say that as usual with all this stuff, it is general advice only. So please do your own research, contact your own financial advisor, etc., before acting on any of the insights or anything we talk about in this podcast. So Gemma, first of all, what's happening in the market out there? What's happening in, in, in retail land for uh, for Trade? What are you seeing at the coalface? Yeah, it's an interesting time. I, because I talk about it all the time, sometimes you've got to kind of step back and see how much has changed. Sometimes it's a bit easy to go, this week this happened, last week that happened. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, it has been quite fascinating to see how this year has really shifted behaviour. And you knew it was coming. So we saw just, everyone knows this, right, just this incredible influx of new investors in 2020, but it continued right through 2021 as well. So this massive, massive spike in new retail investors that occurred during and post the COVID crash, market collapses, people who had thought maybe about buying shares at some point or another, or ETFs, we saw a lot of ETF buying too. I'm thinking about buying shares. Oh my God, now is like the greatest time. I'll never get another opportunity like this. Huge number. So we saw a doubling in our investor base and that was not unusual. That was seen right across the market huge numbers of people coming to buy shares for the first time and then people who hadn't bought shares for years reactivating their accounts and that kind of stuff. So we just saw this massive influx and what they bought during that period was just this incredible flurry but they rushed into things that they would really just like to hold. Uh, So there was massive buying of banks, absolutely massive. BHP was in the top 10, which is not surprising. Mm. Um, This is pre-consolidation. So this is before they delisted from the London Stock Exchange, uh, just BHP, big Australian, we know it. Uh, Buy now, pay later was absolutely massive. This is two years ago. And mix and match of other things, right? There was quite a bit of Wes Farmers, that kind of stuff. So we saw this huge influx of new investors and they were buying banks in particular. Buy Now, Pay Later was their growth sort of story. Uh, A few materials and then sort of other top 20-ish Australian stuff. And that continued really probably for another 12 months. It was very consistent what they were buying. Buy Now, Pay Later started to drift away as soon as Afterpay got the offer from Block. They square slash block. Uh, they started selling, so our guys did not want to take a. Mm. Uh, they didn't want the US listed entity or to hold an equivalent, right? That just was not what they were interested in. After they made sense as a story, that's more complex yeah. business. They weren't interested, so they sold that. 
And then, so we started to slow down in activity last year. This year is completely different. So this year, we did see a bit of buy the dip mentality. So the thing that I really characterized the previous two years was buy the dip. That's what we saw. Every time there was a pullback in the market, we just saw incredibly aggressive buying. To give you an idea, we normally have like a 55-45 split on buys and sells. And we know that... That's typical. Most of our investors are not in pension phase and drawing down on their assets. Even those who are in pension phase would rather live on the income from their investments than sell them. So you're always going to have a trend trend toward buying and you hope to see that over time as people build up portfolios. So we have this sort of strong trend over time toward buying, but it's not 75%. During COVID, it was 80-20. So it was wow. almost all buying. There was just really, really aggressive buying. No one panicked when the market fell. No one. You had a tiny bit of selling and most of it went straight back into the market and money came in from other sources. It was just incredible. We've seen that trend back to a 55-45. So that's really slowed that idea that I have to just buy everything and I need to just mm-hmm. throw my money at the market. And so we've seen a real trend away from buy the dip. There was buying the dip last year. There was insane buying the dip in 2020 now if there's a pullback people just much less enthusiastic and it's been a shift away from broad behavior just buying and selling there's been a shift in who is buying and selling so a lot of our smaller investors have moved to the sidelines and a lot of our newer investors have moved to the sidelines as well they're a bit quieter they're a lot less confident in this environment is just clearly not giving them strong signals. They're not as sure what to do or they just like their portfolios and they want to hang on to them. We're not seeing massive selling or anything like that. It's not panic mm. selling. It's just a little disinteresting to people. You know, the market is quite high compared to when they were buying in two yeah. years ago and, you know, that that potential uplift isn't quite as strong for them anymore. But our bigger investors are making wholesale portfolio changes. So that's always very interesting to see. So they're sort of making shifts. And what people are buying and selling has changed a great deal, which is basically materials with very strong focus on lithium, big gap, other stuff, which was very different to two years ago. So so I guess is lithium going to be the new buy now, pay later? Oh, yeah. And before that, it was milk. Big on milk. Loved milk. Another white powder. <laughs> yes, love the white powder. So we had miners and milk. Then we have buy now, pay later. We're back to miners, but very strong focus on lithium and any other battery material-related stuff. Yeah, it's, it's funny, isn't it? You, you talk about the fact that, um, you know, they haven't seen huge amounts of buying yet. Here we are, a, 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 you know, tiny bit away from an all-time high. You know, the other day we were sort of 1, 1% away from an all-time high. So somebody out there is clearly buying stuff, and I guess... Part of that is BHP is now such a massive part of our index and the changes that's that's made to the index. You know, 11 12% of our index now is BHP. And then you've got the banks. And I, don't, I can't remember when the banks last went actually down. You know, and we've got um, you know, interest rates going up and the banks seem to be making hay while the sun shines with their margins. So uh, that's going to be interesting. Um, so do you think this, this drop-off in volumes, because we have seen a drop-off in volumes, not only here, I guess, in the US, do you think that's going to continue or are we going to get that spark back where we see those um, those smaller investors, those those new, uh, the newbies, I guess, coming to the market sort of um, have a catalyst to be back in there buying stuff? Do you think there's a catalyst out there? The one thing I think is really interesting uh, 
is if your first experience of the share market is making 30% in three weeks, which happened for a lot of people, like a lot, an extraordinary number of people had spectacular Mm. gains in an extremely short period of time. Mm. Everything seems disappointing after that. They haven't even lost money yet. And they're like, this market's rubbish. How the hell am I yeah. supposed to enjoy myself when I can't make 30% in three weeks? So it it's a really interesting market from that expe- uh, that perspective. Like I find it fascinating. Like my mm. title says investor behavior, and that's, you know, obviously just the fun of watching what people do. It's yeah. if you are one of those people and it's an enormous proportion of our base and the market now, I can understand why they're sitting tight because yeah. if you're reasonably comfortable with what's in your portfolio, it's hard to see anything else that has the upside without the downside. And what I mean by that is, you know, the lithium stuff, people really like the idea of it. They get that it's a long-term story and they like decarbonisation. They like energy security. They like batteries. The whole story sounds amazing. The prices that are being commanded for lithium right now are just extraordinary. But when something's just run 500% in 12 months or 200% in 12 months, maybe I'm not that keen on buying it. It's very different to two years ago when they were like, I can buy NAB at $14 and it was $28 three weeks ago. So back then they were like, you know, the downside's extremely limited and the upside looks really good, but it's a top 10 company, whereas this is an X300 company maybe. Maybe Mm. it doesn't have any revenues. (laughs) <laughs> and it's already run 200%. It's a really different risk profile. So they're, you know, they like the idea of it, but it's not, it's not the same. And I wonder how you, how you transition to a normal market when you've had such an extraordinary experience so recently. Yeah. Uh, I think for those people, it's a bit of a challenge. And so they're just biding their time, hoping for a collapse so they get to do it again, even if it was a once in a lifetime one, right? Well, you say it's once a lifetime, but I, you know, I remember the dot com boom. I mean, that was oh, yeah. that was not dissimilar. It's twenty two you know, years ago, though, right? Some of these yeah, kids I'm, weren't even alive back then. I'm, I'm showing my age here, Gemma, but you know, twenty two years ago, I remember days when um, I wasn't. I sort of um, stepped back from the market and was just managing my own money. And I, you know, you get an IPO and you, you know, put some money into it, and you get a phone call from broker saying, "Oh, you're up fifty thousand bucks on day <laughs> yeah. one," and you think, "How did that happen?" You know. It, 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 it was just ridiculous. Do you want to sell? Oh, no. No, I want to, <laughs> no, I want to hang on. <laughs> but the, the point you're making is the dot-com boom, yes, you made extraordinary money and then you lost all of that money immediately afterwards. That didn't happen in the COVID collapse, no, no, right? It was the opposite no. of that. You got to buy super cheap and then it all bounced back and you really didn't have any period of questioning yourself because it happened so quickly. Whereas the GFC, that was my kind of formative experience because I missed yeah. the dot-com bubble by about 10 minutes, um, yeah. thankfully, because I would have lost an absolute fortune, I'm sure, if I had the fun of playing yeah. in it. Um, and I started working with a ton of guys who lost their shirts. Everyone I worked with was just depressed. Like, they were just chronically depressed around me just in there. Well, are you still talking to me? Are you still taking my calls? They didn't have caller ID back then, so they had half a chance of getting through. Um, They wouldn't have otherwise. (laughs) You know, and that was when internet broking took off, right, when people didn't want to talk to their broker after the dot-com boom. Um, GFC was so different, right? And this is where I think the behavioural element comes in, is it was such a long time between Mm. the peak and the bottom. And people kept having these false dawns thinking, that's it, it's done. I'm going to buy the dip and just got wiped out another 30%. Yeah. 
it was such a it was such a brutal experience and it was exhausting and i i at the time dealt with a lot of older clients and they left the market and they never came back yeah. um, and we know from some of the data from the asx um and just from investment trends and some of the other data that's out there there were a lot of people hundreds of thousands of people who sold their shares during the gfc and never came back to the market so they were like i cannot deal with that i'm exhausted by the idea of losing money and the idea that if you hold on you'll be okay you could have held on for 13 years and only just be making back what you lost in capital terms right let's you know yeah. let's not pretend that you didn't get amazing dividends through that period if you were holding banks but you you lost money for a really long time you were underwater if you bought in september 2007 you had a terrible decade after that hmm. terrible so uh, yeah. you know people's timing is so dramatic but the one we just had that was like the most winningest period of all time right like you had such a short window where you lost money such a short window where you made a fortune yeah it's weird because as you say the gfc just kept sort of rolling along and you know it was collapse after collapse after collapse and just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water something else happened yeah and and you were just knocked for six again your confidence goes and you just don't want to play anymore you're just back licking your wounds and, and just not not wanting to take your bat and ball you want to go home yeah 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 i think also i mean the gfc was different in that the catalyst for COVID was so obvious and we yeah. knew immediately what the implications were likely to be we didn't know how long it was going to go on for we didn't know how many people were going to die but that was you know like at the beginning we were terrified that millions yeah. of people were going to die and it was you know it was so terrifying but very clear what the issue was and the trajectories back to normal you could calculate mm. them yeah you can make yeah. some assumptions whereas the gfc we were like what the hell is going on what the hell is yeah. a cfd how did that thing happen what sorry it was cdos back then wasn't it but you're like what yeah. you're like what's a cdo what's why are the banks doing that thing over there what is this you know there was so much confusion particularly for australian investors where we'd never heard of what was going on none of us no. had any understanding of the u.s property market and bill clinton's you know, underwriting of <laughs> of ninja loans back in the day and all this stuff. Like we just didn't have any context on it. So you were, no. it felt like you were flying blind a lot of the time. Like Lehman's went under and people were like, Lehman's? Like, what is yeah. that? I've never heard of like, That's a wine company in Australia. You know, like they just, <laughs> people had, you know, like they just didn't have any context. So they were shocked by it. People were mostly yeah. holding managed funds. You had no idea what was in it. You know, so I... I, the experiences have been so different and it's interesting to me. Half of our base are people who started in this extraordinary period of winning. Yeah. The other half have had some brutal experiences and feel really differently and they're responding really differently to the market we're in right now. That is interesting, isn't it? And, and it has been. It was such a short, sharp, as you say, it was such a brief window. Mm. Um, and you kind of want that window to come back, but I can't really see yeah. Because you kind of think, well, now I know exactly what to do. But unfortunately, mm. everyone knows exactly what to do, which is the reason why it won't happen. Yeah, yeah this is so short now. Like you get a day. That's it. You get a day if you're lucky. Now, well, someone and, yeah. said I've had lunches longer than that collapse, right? Like it was so short. It's so, like, yeah, and for those of us who were around during the long, painful ones, yeah, it's it's incredible. And as you say, everyone hopes it'll happen again. I want to buy stocks 30% off. You're like, okay, well, yeah. something really bad is going to happen in yep. order for that to happen and if you keep waiting you might miss the next rally or you might not i don't know but it just you can see why 
investors are confused. If you only know that window where you bought everything at 50% off and it bounced straight back again, markets are going to be really boring for you for a long time. Yeah, they are. Well, hopefully. Fingers crossed they're going to be boring, right? Fingers crossed. Well, yeah, but then you get the slow and steady grind. But unfortunately, that doesn't make it sexy. And the, the youngsters don't Nobody want to play the that. slow and steady game. No one wants that. <laughs> they want the lithium. They want the white powder. Yeah, they want white give powder me the good fever. stuff. I, I remember back in 87 when I first, you know, I've been in the market a few years then. And the, the market crashed in London and I was there trading away. But after we bounced back, and we did bounce back quite quickly, but then we just went into stasis and we just had this slow grind down everyone who'd lost money who'd sold at the bottom didn't want to play anymore the guys that have picked it beautifully took their profits and they didn't want to play anymore and the volumes dried up and the interest dried up and we just stood around scratching our bottoms for the next two years it was just it was demoralizing <laughs> the volatility dried up the deals yeah. dried up it was just you know and that, that that's one of the reasons i came to australia because london was just so dull at the time it was really um just not a happening place. So I figured I might as well come to somewhere at least that was on the uh, the cusp of being China. You know that that was the big story, the the Asian basin with China. I guess so. in the eighties it was Japan. I remember. Yeah, the it, it was all Ch- about Japan. It wasn't about China here anyway. Yeah. Um, we were all excited about Japan, and then they had yeah. an extraordinary collapse and went nowhere for twenty years. Exactly, exactly. Um, but it's, it's funny, isn't it? Because Japan's still such a massive economy and we don't even think about Japan anymore. And when, when I started, there was, you know, China didn't even buy our iron ore. It was all sold to Japan. And every year, BHP and Rio, the two companies would go up to Japan and they would renegotiate the year's prices for the contract for the iron ore to yep. go to Japan. China wasn't even mentioned. Well, when was I was all, at school, it was contract. all about learning Japanese. It was never about yeah. learning any. You certainly wouldn't think about learning Mandarin or Cantonese. It was all about learning no. Japanese because that was where Australia needed to tilt. And did you? No. I think I can count to <laughs> 10. I learned French and Italian and the fun stuff because I had half a chance of being able to learn it. Look at a Latin yeah. brute. Um, yeah. <laughs> same as yeah. English. But no, God, yeah. no. I was yeah. never going to be any good at Japanese. <laughs> no, I, I'll I just pretend know. it was because I knew that it would have been Cantonese that was better, except I didn't learn that either. No, no, I was told I should learn Spanish and tried valiantly, and I, I was absolute rubbish. At it. <laughs> <laughs> I did do <laughs> economics, though. Does that help? Universal language? That does help to some extent. Yes, that does help to some extent. Now, um, are, there, are there stocks out there that you see are consistently on people's shopping lists? You've talked about BHP mm. and West Farmers and the lithium stocks, but are there any others out there? I mean, Fortescue, is that one that pops up on the shopping list a lot? I'm sure it does. So Fortescue is the most traded stock on NabTrade and has been wow. for, let's say, 18 months. So it's wow. before the iron ore price peaked. And it's, it's worth noting it's a very specific stock mm. that is traded for a very specific reason by very specific number of people. So they tend to be a small number of very high value traders. They trade it very actively. Um, They will move, you know, a lot more money than I've got. And that's their entire portfolio in and out of Fortescue because they watch the iron ore price really closely. It's a single bet and they can read it really well. So yes, it's absolutely in there, but it's not mums and dads buying it for the long term and it's not, you know, 
day trading punters. These are very well-educated people who know exactly what they're doing. And this is their stock of choice right now and has been their stock of choice for some time. But when the iron ore price sort of settles down, and I say when because I recorded podcasts with people telling me that would have happened late last year when Vale came back online and everything was all going to settle down and supply normalised and blah, 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 and all the things that didn't happen, uh, it, it won't be Fortescue forever. It is right. Fortescue now because it is a a stock that moves in a predictable way for people who know how to right. watch it. And, and do you think, I mean, Fortescue is pushing into uh, the green theme and Twiggy's been mm. a, a sort of a, a fantastic advocate vocal, for that. Yeah. Mm. Very vocal on that and using his, um, his position to do that, which is fantastic. But is that confusing the Fortescue stories, do you think? Is that confusing your your traders in Fortescue, or are they just saying it's still an iron ore stock, let's forget about all the, the, the future that they're pushing towards, yeah. let's just focus on the iron ore? I think that they would view that the way a lot of people view CSL, which has got its a, you know, amazing, deep R&D book. And if any yeah. of that comes off, that's great, but I'm playing this. You know, like I can read this really well. This market makes sense to me and I know what's happening in it. And there's a fantastic R&D book full of very interesting things. And I never know whether any of it will take off. But if it does, that's a a win too. We haven't seen a transition of people into Fortescue because of that. We just see the same people clearly focused on it. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's that's something to to bear in mind. Now, we do... At the moment, I, I wrote an article the other day, and I I, I I pretended I was an alien, or you know, David Bowie, the man that fell to earth, mm. and that I hadn't seen a market, I hadn't seen what the market mm. had been doing, and I listed all the negatives. Mm. And, and the question was, if you've got all these negatives going on, war in Europe, high commodity prices, inflation going to the roof, mm. interest rates, etc., where would you think the market is at the moment? Mm. If you hadn't seen any of, you know. <laughs> And you kind of think, was it? Would you really be at an all-time high given what is going on? But yeah, here we are, and we're seeing all this chatter at the moment about the yield curve and the inversion of that. You you, you studied um, the economic side of things. I feel like everything I learned is rubbish now. But yes, it's a joy of economics, mm. isn't it? <laughs> Somebody else has got a new theory. Mm. Um, but you know, we, we're hearing a lot about this yield curve and predictions of a, a recession in. 18 months time, I think I saw Shane Oliver on TV the other day saying that that's, you know, that the average time it takes from that first inversion to the recession, uh, 18 months. Is that, um, are we seeing a shift towards defensive stocks, do you think, because of that worry? Or is that something the investors really haven't focused on really? You know, we hear lots of talk, but Mm. we actually don't really do much about it sort of thing. I think there's two elements to it. So, the first point I would make is the ASX is, and you know this vastly better than I do, but the, the ASX is a completely different composition to the rest of the world, which has been yeah. very disadvantageous for the last 15 years because our tech industry is a couple of Tiny. buy now, pay later stocks and some payments yeah. or something. Um, you know, like it's, it's not, that's not our strong suit, right? No. Uh, and that's really hurt us when you compare it to the performance yeah. of the US, uh, even India, some other places where, yeah, they really focus heavily on tech. China's been the same. You know, there's been all these places where they've just had exceptional growth in companies that we could never dream of having. We don't have the population and we don't have the skill set here, really. No. Uh, now, however, much less like, ironically, post the dot-com boom, we have materials, lucky us, yeah. and we have yeah. financials 
in a rising interest rate environment where they've had their margins absolutely crushed and suddenly they get a chance to expand expand those margins again and I mean, there is the issue of the fact that the household sector is extraordinarily indebted, so that's a bit of a problem. Um, but there is yeah, there's a lot of reason to like the ASX in this environment relative yeah. to plenty of other markets around the world where you're going to have massive PE compression and a rising interest rate environment and high inflation, you've got oil prices killing everything and blah, blah, blah. So we've got stuff that other people want and we are a geopolitically secure region par excellence compared to some of the others that people are looking at right now. So there's a lot to like about the ASX and I think our investors naturally prefer to invest at home anyway. When I say I think our data tells us that our investors vastly you know. You yeah, know. we know, right? And yeah. we you know we always have data on whether or not they do go offshore and to what extent you never have a full picture of people's portfolios, but uh, investors do prefer to have a large amount of their holdings at home. Mm. And Investors are clearly focusing on materials at the moment and clearly focusing on financials at the moment. And as a result, they're buying stuff they know, but stuff that holds up fairly well in the kind of macro environment that we're looking at, it's not perfect. Equities in general aren't perfect in this environment. But I feel like our investors go, if I have to hold something, a couple of banks, and BHP and a few lithium miners might not be the yeah. worst thing in this environment. And I still no. don't want to be in cash and I still don't want to be in fixed income because they're hurting badly. Mm. Uh, and even if interest rates go to 2%, still rubbish compared to the yield I get on everything else. Um, and we're a long way from 2% even if they hike really aggressively. So I think for our investors, they look at this macro environment. They do think the share price of everything is too high. We can see that from how little they're buying relative to two years ago. But they're not selling aggressively. They don't feel it's toppy-toppy. Like it's this is not an overheated market given what we're seeing. They just think, you know what, I'm going to hang on to what I've got because in this environment hanging on to that is probably better than the alternative. It's funny, isn't it? We're so caught up in watching what the Dow and the NASDAQ does. Mm. And and nobody ever looks at Toronto, Mm. which is probably the closest economy to ours with a bit more oil and gas than iron ore and coal. But they're very much a a commodity economy as well. And yet nobody gives two hoots about what Toronto, you know, every morning I wake up and what's the Dow done and what's the NASDAQ done? I mean, as you say, our tech sector is block, which isn't even ours anymore. Mm. I mean, Apart from computer share mm. and wise tech and zero, that's it, mm. pretty much. And the rest of it are also runs way down the bottom. Yet we're fixated on. Oh my God! Look, Facebook's dropped five percent. Have to sell everything. It's, it's... <laughs> Our equivalent of Apple is going to collapse. Yeah. The one we don't have. Yeah. The one we don't have exactly. You know, it's it's obviously setting a trend. Um, it's it's it is bizarre. <laughs> what did Tesla do? And all our electric vehicle manufacturers are going to go the same way. Um, yeah, yeah. Exactly. it is. It's so true. But it's yeah, like when you watch your sectors each day, you can see clearly how spoiled we are. Yeah, mm. we have a heat map. Like literally, as soon as you log into the platform, you can see a heat map that tells you how big the sectors are, not whether yeah. they're red or green. Just have a look at how big they are, and then yeah. go and look at a heat map of the of yeah. the Dow or of the S&P 500. It's completely different, right? So yeah. you can yeah. see why investors are okay with what they've got at the moment. Mm. So, Gemma, tell us about what you do 
at NAB, apart from looking at what investors are doing, you've, you've got a, a big job over there. <laughs> you're, you're the, you know, Flitz about this... looking at stuff and then talking about it. <laughs> well, yeah, but you, you develop all this, this suite of applications for SMSFs and all this sort of stuff. Tell us a little bit about that. This is your chance to do the plug. Oh, do the plug. Oh, okay. Right, cool. You can do the plug. <laughs> So my job now, because you, I, I did see you had a question in there about uh, self-funded yeah. super funds and our suite of products. That was my role five years ago. So it's been okay. a while since I did that. Uh, and it's really interesting to me. There's a reason why that's not a role anymore. Self-funded mm. super funds is sort of where I started uh, working with financial advisors and various other people when SMSFs were, uh, frankly, just a very special little tax haven for very, very rich people. And there were very few of them, but they were worth an absolute fortune. And then as they became far more mass market, um, the bank in particular had to get their head around how they operated because what we realised, there's a mentality that self-managed super funds are primarily advised by financial advisors, right? And so that people who have self-managed super funds have all of their assets sitting on a platform, people be familiar with net wealth and uh, and those sorts of products. Back in the day, it was Colonial First State, that sort of thing. And so, yeah, they have a platform and they have a financial advisor. And then we did this piece of research, which is how I ended up with that role going, oh, no, it turns out 90% of them have their money with the bank and with right. a trading platform. Okay. And uh, from research that was done outside the NAB looking across the market, 10% of self-managed super funds, and this research is six or seven years old, but it's been consistently updated and it doesn't change a great deal, although a dramatically different market might see it change. 10% of self-managed super funds want to be, they want to delegate all of their stuff, all of their investments, all of their advice. They just want someone to do everything for them, right? The other 90%, around half of them want to be able to check in with someone and, and sort of consult with someone and the other 45% want to just completely do it on their own. And that became my experience. The more people I met, the more it was obvious that that was very true, that people set up a self-managed super fund because they want to manage their own money, not because they want to give it all to a financial advisor and have it done for them. So I found that super interesting. As a bank, we had hundreds of thousands of clients who had self-managed super funds, had money with the bank and the bank didn't have a particularly strong view on how to support those people best. They just assumed that they would want to have a planner or have a planner who was looking after them. So my job was kind of how do we bring things together and make it a bit more obvious where you find stuff if you've got a self-managed super fund and we don't go and sell you a bank account with a, an overdraft attached that's illegal, for example. So a lot of really simple stuff, just cleaning everything up to make sure that if it was for a self-managed super fund, it was, first of all, constructed appropriately and yeah. secondly was likely to be what you were after that you weren't going to go to your planner i'm doing a terrible job of plugging what i do by the way i'm talking about something you are, you're doing, i'm terrible <laughs> it's not my strong suit um oh, sorry, I, I can edit <laughs> you can edit. just take out the bits that are rubbish uh, but i ended up working for nab trade because that's where the self-funded super funds were and the more we talk to our clients, the more we realise that our clients want us to be talking to them and bringing them investment ideas. And so now my job is a podcast, and which I do fortnightly, and I talk to people like you, and I just ask the questions and get people to talk about where they think people should be investing and what choices they should make. And people love it. Like 
I'm a big believer in podcasts. I love them. And we have found the engagement with podcasts is infinitely higher than it is with articles, videos, webinars, and so on. People love it. Uh, mm. And it's great. You get to have really rich, interesting conversations. And I go on AusBiz and talk about what people are investing and trading in. And I write articles and I go to the ASX Investor Days and talk to people in person and all that kind of thing. And sometimes I give my own opinion, but 90% of the time I'm just talking about this is what people like you are doing. And Everyone wants to know what other people are doing. Everyone, right? We all yeah. want to know what someone else is doing. Whether we agree with them or not, you want to know. And yeah. so we have found that that is the kind of content that people are most interested in. So my job is very much about bringing ideas to our investors, whether it's ideas about what other people are doing or ideas about what experts are thinking. And uh, and I do that in a variety of ways. And you do it very well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sometimes you get rubbish guests on like me, but, <laughs> but um, going, going back to, you know, the, the market at the moment, you, you obviously do talk to a whole heap of people uh, when you do your podcast and just in, in, in your job. Um, what, what do you think we should be worried about on the horizon? What are people worried about on the horizon? What will create the next kind of window? Is it going to be interest rates? We, we're seeing the big four banks, you guys included, all upgrading their sort of, it's going to be hard and it's going to be short sharp and it's going to be painful sort of scenarios is that going to be the thing that upsets the apple card at the moment or is there something else out there that people have you said said to people oh have you thought about this one this is the black swan <laughs> oh if i knew what the said, black swan was i wouldn't tell anyone that's just gonna yeah, that's gonna that's give true. us our 30 percent dip right then we can all that buy is. it except we'll all buy that it on is. the first day because we're not stupid yeah. we know what's gonna happen exactly. uh, <laughs> I, so my husband refers to me as resident bear, so I'm a terrible person to ask about what you should worry yeah. about because I've got a long list. Um, the interest rate question is really interesting to me. I look at the level of household indebtedness in Australia and highly question the RBA's resolve to mm. raise rates to a level anywhere above, say, 2%. And you and I have been around long enough to remember that 2% was the cheapest rate we've ever seen. When it hit 2%, I was like, this is amazing. Yeah. So I, I think that interest rates will have to be paused. The, the rate increases will have to be paused at a level, level that the broader population can tolerate. You do not want to bankrupt many, many people. You don't want wide-scale defaults. And even though we love putting charts out there saying the average household has X savings and we have 30% of households are more than two years ahead on their mortgage repayments, 30% aren't. They don't have any repayments ahead, mm. which means if you raise rates too fast, you tip the most vulnerable over immediately, which seems like an extraordinary thing to do uh, mm. both economically and politically. So I feel like we can be calm about what the trajectory looks like because nobody wants to see that happen and regardless of how much we talk about how resilient some households are we know that they're not all no. we know they're not and i'll tell you what at nab we know because uh, i know how many people had to be drafted onto the phones when COVID hit and how many yeah. people had no savings. They let people take $10,000 out of their superannuation and we saw hundreds of thousands of people do that. 
because they had no alternative source of income. I mean, that's terrifying, right? I mean, some people did buy jet ski. We heard those stories too. But some people did it because they had no (laughs) cash. And that worries me a lot. So I think that rates will, obviously, they're going to rise. I'm not pretending they're going to stay at 0.1 forever. They will rise, but I do think that they'll be fairly cautious about how they do it because you want to ensure that you're not tipping the most vulnerable over the edge very quickly. I also think, and this is sort of an economic thought, you know, this looks like supply push inflation to me. Yes, there's a ton of demand pull, but I feel like a lot of that's come from fiscal policy. Not well, some of it's monetary, obviously, because it's cheaper to buy a house. But yeah. there's been, you know, nothing you do with interest rates are going to make oil prices any cheaper, right? They're no. not going to get cheaper just because you put rates to 10%. Uh, there are a lot of elements of inflation that are not going to change just because of rates. So I think that is something to be aware of. Um, Mm. There's a lot of fiscal stimulus out there still that will stop, so that's interesting. So I think the economy will kind of uh, tinker along. Uh, I I think for investors, I can't see an obvious catalyst for a collapse unless we get another COVID variant that starts wiping people out. Yeah. You know, that, I mean, that would start things very quickly. And there is the issue that the US goes into recession because the Fed, you know, they're starting to become quite aggressive about raising rates. And if they yeah. raise rates super fast, that has flow-on effects for everybody. And if the US uh, market collapses, there's a sort of contagion effect. And even though we've just yeah. got banks and financials, banks and materials, we'll still probably have a big pullback then too. Yes, that's fair enough. Now... Finally, Gemma, I'm going to ask you the, the question that's on, on my list as a final mm. question. What's the best advice anyone has ever given you? Such a good question. It doesn't, doesn't have to be career advice. Yeah, yeah. Um, we always, people always like, what did your parents tell you? And the only thing I ever remember my father saying consistently, um, very in, my, in mind that my father's had a very successful career, was don't be the person who peaks in high school. Which is a very odd thing to say. But the point that he was making, and I do think this is good advice, was you have plenty of chances in life to get better and do more. And he was kind of like, you can be the captain of the football team and get the top grades and all of those things, but that's not the time to peak, right? Don't do it then. He's he's 72 and still getting awards and doing all of these amazing things. And I find that quite inspiring. Like it doesn't end at any particular stage of your life. You can keep getting better and doing more interesting things. And because you've had some achievements, don't start resting on your laurels. Or if you haven't had the achievements you want to have, you've still got a long runway ahead of you, right? Apparently, even when you're 72. So it sounds like an odd thing to say, but it's good advice. I quite like it. I think it's great advice. Your dad's obviously a very smart man. I think it's terrific advice. <laughs> yeah. It is a long game after all. I mean, you look, you know, Colonel Sanders. Mm. Was he in his 60s when he started KFC? So, you know, My dad it's a long game. got a project with the Gates Foundation in his 50s. Uh, where they they did a thing called Grand Challenges in Global Health and they gave out massive long-term, like decade-long grants. Mm. And he got that in his 50s. He would never have gotten it in his 30s, I don't think, or 40. I mean, Gates wasn't doing that sort of thing back then anyway. But mm. that project has been going for, you know, 15, 20 years, something like that. It's still super successful. I remember him telling me when he came back from the first 
project or whatever it was, the first meeting, there were four Nobel Prize winners in the room. Wow. So it was not an insignificant thing to get. It was no. in his 50s, right? Like that stuff That's... doesn't come along when you're a kid. you got to earn it. Yeah, you got to earn it. I think I should get your dad on the podcast. <laughs> he's an interesting guy. I will he never sounds, I, I will never sounds, live up to anything he's ever done, but it's um, interesting. Mm. Well, he's, he's obviously a very, very smart man, and, and, that, and that advice he gave you I think is, uh, is very good advice. Mm-hmm. So, Gemma, thank you very much for being on the show today. I've really enjoyed chatting to you. As always, you're fantastic to chat to, and um, it's been a delight. Thank you very much. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.